Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Chris Taufa-Tafua, a partner in Milbank's Global Project Energy and Infrastructure Finance Group based in London. Let's get to it. A lot happened in 2022 with respect to climate and sustainability, setting the stage for more to come in 2023. It was a year of extreme weather events, hurricanes and wildfires, catastrophic floods in many parts of the world, and extreme heat. In 2022, energy investments globally rose by 8% to almost $2.3 trillion. Three-fourths of this growth in energy investment was for clean energy, to over $1.4 trillion. And although much of the increase was also due to inflation and higher costs and supply chain problems, we're still investing over $500 billion just in this last year alone in end-use and efficiency gains, almost $1 trillion in the power sector, most of it in renewables, and for investments in grid modernization and energy storage. In the United States, the Inflation Reduction Act was enacted, providing billions of dollars of incentives for renewables and clean and advanced technologies. In Europe and the United Kingdom, new initiatives have been announced, regulating corporate disclosures on climate risks, carbon markets, and sustainable investing. In the next year, we will likely see new rules coming out of the United States SEC, regulating climate risk disclosures, as well as finalization of the new IFRS Sustainability and Climate Disclosure Standards from ISSB. Amid all of this, I attended the COP27 climate conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, facilitated greatly by my partner Chris Taufa-Tafua, who has long been a delegate for the Kingdom of Tonga attending UN climate conferences. I wasn't really quite sure what to expect. One question on my mind is whether these large international conferences are really worth the carbon footprint of bringing in 40,000 delegates to kind of huddle along the dry, rocky, barren coast of the Red Sea next to the mountains where Mount Sinai is located. They pulled up these big pavilions. Uh, there are over 150 pavilions just in the blue zone in these big buildings that have been erected temporarily next to the International Conference Center. Separately, there's a green zone for other groups, for non-governmental uh, organizations and protesters and activists uh, together. They built two different new solar farms to try to make the COP27 renewable, powered by clean energy. I'll point out down the coast, there's still six units of a gas-fired power plant that were uh, operating. So, uh, one of them during the, the conference using a test for hybrid fuel meant to be more efficient. We also saw great progress. There was also an establishment of a dedicated fund for loss and damage, which will help vulnerable countries that are hit by floods and by droughts and by uh, other climate impacts uh, still be, to be determined who will pay for it, how much it will cost. But there was real progress made uh, at the conference in some of these areas. And in others, there is simply not enough made. Uh, if you look at the, the progress of countries so far on their climate pledges, there still is a gap between what countries are saying they will do and what they're actually achieving. And as a result, more needs to be done. So while there, I talked with Chris, and let me give you the conversation that we had recorded live at COP27 in Egypt. First, I want to thank you, though, for making the opportunity available to be here with you at COP27. Very much a pleasure. You've been to how many of these so far? Uh, oh. Got me on the spot there. Seven, seven, I think now. And how did you first get involved with the, the Tonkin delegation negotiating? 
I've been involved doing environmental projects in Tonga for probably over 20 years now and was a youth activist uh, growing up as well. So um, Tonga is a small place, passion-led, so if you're interested in the stuff, then there's always scope to get involved. We've got the governmental, sovereign, you know, international negotiations, what the Conference of the Parties is really supposed to be about initially. We've got these side events, some of them quite posh actually, mm -hmm. where people who are coming up with new technologies, you know, climate solutions, carbon tracking, what have you, corporates, people interested in financing, carbon markets, carbon pricing, you know, they're having their discussions around this, which are meant to address climate change in ways that either reduce risk or add value, but are, you know, fundamentally private market driven. And then there's activists, there's youth activists and indigenous groups and others, although I think at this COP they've been a bit more sidelined than they probably have been in, in previous ones. How does this then compare to, to prior COPs? This COP is different in that from a, from the government COP process side, there hasn't been the same clearly defined set of objectives from the outset to direct, I think, each of the countries. So that you know, I don't think we've been as focused on one or two things which we have had in the past. You know, in the past we've had whether it's closing out the Katowice rule book and Article 6, keeping 1.5 alive and what that meant from in, in terms of reaffirming or improving our RNDs, on, on our NDCs. Here I think everyone has arrived with a different perspective on what implementation means. You know, those of us in the smaller island states and other countries and have been very much focused on getting loss and damage, not just on the agenda, but also towards something more meaningful. Whereas we've had other countries, other blocks with a very different focus. Yeah. I guess I'm not too surprised just based on the conversations I've had with, with people here, not just from governments, but people who are not with governments. And what's at stake seems to be different for different people. So for instance, for a, a lot of companies, what's at stake is their corporate reputation, perhaps profits, perhaps supply chains. Um, for others, it may be a passion, something they bring to this, they genuinely care. But at the end of the day, if it's you know 1.5 or 1.6 or 1.7, it feels abstract, I think, to a lot of people because you know they may lose profits, they may lose opportunities. But for island nations, especially island nations like Tonga, I mean, these are existential questions. I mean, you, 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 there's so much more at stake and it's so much more immediate. And is that a fair distinction? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is um, this is one of the first cops where what's really been highlighted, I think, to us is that there is a. We've probably come into. I'll give an example. We've come into our first clash between the science on, on one one of our first clashes on the science side, and that is on the issue of seabed mining, and the minerals on on the seabed floor. In the past, it has sort of felt, you know, just keeping with that example, that we were all on the same side, at least. We may not agree on how to get there, but we all see those that look at the science are seeing the science broadly the same way, right? We're rowing in the same direction. On this, I think we're seeing one of our major, our first fundamentally big fractures between how different people come at this particular issue. Probably the, the second point is one around sort of this whole greenwashing, the greenwashing side. I think one of the, the risks that we're facing now, not just as a COP process, but as a, as a broader climate science uh, or just climate process generally, I think we're at the point which is we're at risk of destabilizing a lot of what's going on, like a lot of the constructive, um, uh, a lot of the constructive discussion because 
because there is a lot to take aim at in our process, right? This is not a perfect process. You know, one of the, I think, two things that I always say about COP, you know, the first thing is COP is not green. COP is not green. That's COP for is sure. not green. No, we're standing and, in the middle of a desert yeah, absolutely. with widely scattered buildings that are brightly lit with air conditioning, yeah. allegedly from solar power, but I have my doubts. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, but, and people are flying, the carbon footprint of flying here. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, if what comes out of it is real change, exchange of substantive information, building of uh, alliances to actually solve problems, that's worth it. Is that is it worth it this year? Is that happening? I think it's always worth it in that, in that each of these things, none of them are perfect. The process itself is flawed. We work within a flawed set of systems, right? So we aren't we are set up to fail on making the process itself green. COP is an easy target in the sense that, um, and and very easy to attack in the sense that there is so much that's imperfect. Not just the, not just about the you know the process itself, us all being here, the footprints of the thing, but also in everything from the climate, uh, the justice. In many ways, COP is a proxy for the broader climate conversation you know you have it's expensive to get here the accommodation is blown out you know getting access to different people and and uh, you know before you even get into the substantive issues there is so much that's just in the process and the logistics of being here that in in, in many ways looks like a proxy for everything that's playing out in the in the broader global context of, of climate change yeah that that wealth inequality uh, among people and among nations i mean certainly is playing out here who has a voice who's at the table who decides it certainly is filtered as a result yeah absolutely how has this been for you as your first cop it's a bit of a strange experience um i would describe it not so much as drinking from a fire hose although there is that sense of excess information and you know excess viewpoints that are coming you know, I was talking to some of the scientists, uh, some of the oceanographers, uh, meteorologists, you know, really getting in the weeds of this. Uh, one, somebody from the IPCC talking about even there that there are negotiations among the scientists among how best to present it that are influenced by political factors. As part of the COP process, the UN's IPCC, or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has put out a six assessment and reports in the past year. Working Group 1 put out its report in 2021, which went online with an interactive atlas in 2022 looking at the physical science basis for climate change. Working Group 2 looked at the impacts of climate change, adaptation, and vulnerability, specifically on ecosystems, biodiversity, and human communities, both on a global and regional level. And finally, in 2022, Working Group 3 of the IPCC looked at mitigation and the sources of global emissions and evaluated the progress of the pledges that nations have made since Paris. It's almost as if we should rename those reports as Volume 1. Here's the science and the solutions. We're doomed unless you hurry up. Volume 2. No, seriously, we're all doomed. Are you listening? And Volume 3. I tried to warn you. Now we are all doomed it would have been easier to have prevented this mess in the first place. And yet there are plenty of voices asking us to roll up our sleeves and get to work. New Zealand's Minister for Climate Change, James Shaw, who was a pleasure to meet, mentioned we should put our shoulder to the wheel to get the work done. I heard the Honorable Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, calling on industrialized nations to fight this battle. And after COP27 ended, Development Minister Svenja Schulze of Germany said the outcome of the climate change conference is a mixed bag. Too little progress on ambition, 
but great progress on solidarity. Perhaps the most inspiring voices, for me anyway, did not come from government officials, but rather from the youth activists, people in their teens, twenties, and thirties, knowledgeable, thoughtful, committed, and organized. And after long days of meetings and discussions and passionate engagement, they let off their steam at the Children and Youth Pavilion in the Blue Zone at COP27. And here's a sample of what we heard there. The single best piece of advice I received before going to COP27 is really quite simple. Wear comfortable shoes. The amount of walking and standing in line and listening to people at lectures and so forth is really quite extraordinary. Chris also asked me what the best experience was that I'd had there. Here's my answer. I think the best thing for me actually has been bumping into people, uh, whether it's on the the buses going back and forth uh, at the hotels. You know, I had the pleasure of bumping into a California state senator. He used to be my law student. We talked about climate things. Uh, bumping into people from uh, other countries. I talked to people from Malawi, from people from Eastern European nations, people from other island states. And they all bring different perspectives to this. I think one of the things, too, that struck me, I, I was on my way from one finance panel to one that was based on science over the Ocean Pavilion. And I was passing through and heard a conversation that made me stop, and I sat down. And it was people from a religious background and a philosophical background and a community background talking over in the DESA SDG pavilion. And what came out of it, very alien to the legal or economic way I might tend to, or policy way I might tend to approach these sorts of issues, it was a personal one. And what they were basically saying is, climate change is a trauma. It's, uh, it's suffering. And it, and it is suffering, manifesting for so many people around the world. How do you keep that suffering from becoming despair? And the answer was, well, because you're afraid. And that fear could cause despair, but instead you realize, you know what? We're all in this together. It's urgent. We have the capacity, we have the tools, or at least we we do what we can. That's, I think, resilience is when you just do what you have to do, whether it's sufficient or not. And that kind of realization and the empathy of hearing each other's experience, whether it's about extreme heat or wildfires or rising seas or depletion of fisheries, whatever it might be, that listening to each other's stories of the trauma is what creates the opportunity, not just for collaboration, but actually for hope. So that you you don't get the hope unless you have that realization and and, and the fear that came from that. It was a very powerful message. Mm -hmm. Emotionally, I mean, you're you're dealing with this and you're from a place which is threatened imminently how do you deal with the emotional kind of the odd juxtaposition of I mean you're a lawyer you're you're just you're trained to be dispassionate and rational and persuasive and yet you're in a situation which is inescapably personal and and, and vulnerable yeah sure and, and then on many levels although we are you know we are trained to sort of separate those things I think we are best armed and able to address all of this if we come with all of ourselves to these conversations. If I said before that sort of the first rule of COP is that COP is not green, get over it, sort of move on. We still need to turn up. We still need to be in people's ears and the rest. That's important to do. You know, that, that's sort of rule number one with, I think, coming to any of these processes. Don't expect it to be perfect. Rule number two is sort of related, which is whatever happens, you can't go away having lost hope. 
right? You're going to hear a lot of great stuff, a lot of bad stuff, and a lot of things which you know might not necessarily ring, you know, hold water from a greenwashing perspective, whatever else it is. But I'll, but I'll, uh, it's important that you, in in some ways, that you do insulate yourself from it. Yes, you bring the passion and the rest, but. You need to be able to keep enough of yourself intact that you turn up again, not just next year, because it's not 365 days between now and the next COP. The next COP is tomorrow and the day after, and our job continues, right? This may be the culmination of things, but but it's every day that we are battling these thematics or in our work that we are that we are doing things to move this process along. One thing I have been struck by is you know, the measure of progress since this process started several years ago by the United Nations and the, the, member, the member states. You know, we were on a trajectory by 2100 for the atmosphere to to increase in temperature by over four degrees Celsius due to you know, greenhouse gas emissions, and we've cut that in half. You know, it's it's taken us 10 or 15 years to do that, but as a result of of the process, as a result of national policies, as a result in particular of changes in the markets in reaction to some of those policies and 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 the technology has come from it, we've seen rapid deployment of solar power, rapid deployment of wind power. We've seen rationalizations and efficiencies in the use of energy, improvements in water. You know, we've seen that progress can be made. The only issue is we haven't really made it fast enough and therefore haven't yet gone far enough. But I, I, I think the process has enabled us to at least get, us, to get to where we are. We just have to keep running toward that horizon. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, we, we've sort of held out 1.5 as our stretch goal and, and 2 as sort of what many of the larger countries think we're, we we should be aiming towards, and you know, that's a that's a big open conversation that's that's going on and keeping people up through the night in negotiations. But you even have to look at what has been positioned as our stretch goal, this 1.5, and and really, if we're being honest and understanding a lot of the science that has come out since 2015, when we first sort of committed to that 1.5, we say in the small islands that we were committed to it. Our science now tells us that actually that 1.5 is not enough. There are a lot of bad things that happen before we get to that 1.5, including the ice sheets, uh, loss of, I think, up to 85% of our corals and, and things like that. We don't yet know what that all means if it plays out. But I think one of the important messages, and this is starting to get some traction here, is if we're having an honest conversation about what all this means over the next 20, 30, 50, 100 years, 1.5 is not enough. Yeah, I mean, we're at 1.1 now. We're already seeing extreme weather events, more intense and slower moving uh, and quicker forming hurricanes. I was at a presentation from NASA uh, earlier this afternoon, and in looking at the concentrations of carbon, particularly over the Arctic, and the effect that has on the Greenland ice melting faster than I think had even been expected before, because the models did not assume the concentrations that we currently have. And the models, the methodology of science is fine. It's the data that gets refined as you you know, make the models closer to what's actually happening. Um, you know, the effect of melting permafrost, fires uh, in the Arctic region, what that does to release further carbon from what had previously been carbon stores. You know, that's, that is, I think, something that was, was, was fairly scary. Um, by the same token, there are other parts of the planet that will be affected but are not yet really feeling it in its ten- you know, tangible way. So I think that's one of the other things that makes it harder, perhaps, for people to envision the importance of these, but otherwise just kind of you know, numbers on a piece of paper or abstract uh, measurements. Yeah, absolutely. I think one one of the key elements, you know, touching one of the themes that you, t- that you that you brought up there, is what has sort of been missing from the conversation today. Two of the biggest elements that were, that are missing from the Paris Agreements entirely and have been missing from this conversation are the ocean and the role of the individual. Right? So the ocean, we've only just started to understand the science 
behind the role that it plays in terms of absorbing carbon, but also for you know, a, a lot of climate, I guess, defensive measures that it, that it serves. And I think what's been missing so far has been our ability to factor in that science into our process, right? Paris Agreement is still silence on the ocean. Yes, we've got for the first time an ocean pavilion, but the ocean, I think, still remains largely a blind spot. There are other blind spots. 1.5, I mentioned. Um, methane is another blind spot. We know lots about it, but there's very little to actually talk about, you know, uh, in, in terms of action and objectives and, and key indicators. Well, let's stay with the so, ocean for a second. I mean, it covers 70% of the Earth's surface. It absorbs 90% of the marginal increasing heat uh, from the atmosphere. It's by far the largest carbon store and carbon sink, significantly larger than even the, you know, the rainforest in the Congo Basin or the Amazon uh, combined. And you're right, there is a lot we don't know about. Biodiversity, too, is, uh, you know, the ocean is a significant source. Ultimately, we see it you know, for, for food and, and other things. But it, it's a significant source of biodiversity in the planet, and particularly vulnerable. You mentioned coral reefs before. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what, what we do with the oceans next, I think, obviously, we've got various oceans conferences, you know, which are, which are pushing a blue agenda. It would be good to see it see it the ocean start to be more part of our discussions here in, in a formal sense there's a lot more happening in the you know in, in the side event spaces and we've got it, it's becoming a lot more a part of the discussion but i think it's it's uh, it's certainly got some way to go other elements on the ocean you know obviously we touched on seabed mining earlier the role of and the whole you know blue carbon discussion yeah sure sure and and maybe there being potential for a space where the two intersect. You know, the, the whole debate around seabed mining is driven by a proposed moratorium at the moment, which is, you know, many countries are saying, we don't understand just what it means to go around sucking up these nodules from the seabed and what sort of damage that can do. That conversation has mostly been had in two contexts. One is the biodiversity that, it, that exists on these nodules. You know, it takes these things two or 300 million years to form. We don't know what that biodiversity, so it's, it's not that like it can be easily replaced. We don't know how that biodiversity plays into not just ha you know, having intrinsic value of, it, of its own right, but also how does it play into the, the wider food chain, including you know, up the chain through to the photosynthesizing creatures, which ultimately are the, are the foundation for what, what then feeds a lot of the world and drives a lot of the, the, the current blue economies. We also don't know just how much carbon is, is sat in on the seabed floor. And, you know, there were some great reports last year which had measured the silt that was disturbed or, or the carbon that was disturbed or emitted as a result of dragnet fishing. And, and you know, the act of dragnetting accounts for, just that act itself accounts for carbon which surpasses the aviation industry entirely. Wow. Right, so that's wow. that's just dragnetting. So now you're then talking about a process which will mean we put these giant vacuum cleaners into the seabed floor at depths where there's creatures and, and things that we don't know about, but we know there's silt, and we start disturbing this silt. That silt is then, along with the, the nodules themselves, pumped up onto a, onto a vessel, and then uh, where the nodule is collected, and then the silt you know, rinsed off, and then that silt is then pumped back down. It's only pumped back down, say, around 1,500 meters. And so what you then end up with are these great big plumes, these, these massive sort of silt plumes like a, that look a lot like a nuclear you know, bomb has been let off, but, you know, subsurface of the, you know, not on a subsea. 
we don't understand at all what that's going to mean. These, these plumes can be hundreds of square kilometers wide. You're going to have gilled fish traveling through them. You've got heavy particulates, sediments, all of which sits in, sits in that space for you know, up to 100 days. But we're doing this constantly. So this particulate, all this, this sediment is just going to be sat there suspended in water for a time. And we just don't know what that means, you know. One for the fish stocks, I hate to use the term stocks, but it helps talk about this from a blue economy perspective and it does resonate with folk, but for the fish that are traveling through. But two also, if this stuff travels and we then have some of the cross-border things that we've discussed in the context of nuclear and other things, what does that then do, not just as it crosses borders, but as it encounters photosynthesizing creatures, corals, the phytoplanktons, all the things which we know are critical to our not just our food chains, but you know, our broader blue economy. But what does it mean if, the, if, if all of a sudden they're not getting the sunlight and the rest? Of, you know, do we do we run the risk of potentially breaking chains in catastrophic ways? So the, the argument isn't that we don't do this at all, but it's that we give ourselves ten years to figure out if we should touch it. And I think uh, more and more, most countries are sort of. It, it seems obvious, but more. But it's not quite there yet with, with all countries. But we are starting to we are starting to see a movement towards supporting this moratorium. Chris is right. The oceans are central to understanding how we can deal with climate change. The oceans trap more carbon, by far, than the Amazon rainforests of South America and the rainforests of the Congo Basin in Africa combined. Habitats and ecosystems in the ocean are also more vulnerable and more important to humans and civilization around the world. Even if temperature rise were limited to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, most of the world's coral reefs and the species they support are seriously endangered. To that end, the United States announced at COP27 the first cohort of countries to endorse the Ocean Conservation Pledge, an ambitious new effort to encourage countries to commit to conserve or protect at least 30% of the ocean waters under their national jurisdiction by 2030. U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate John Kerry was running around COP27 for meetings with government officials and meetings with youth activists and students and everything in between uh, and made a stop at the U.S. Center on November 16th to announce the multinational commitment to this ocean pledge. And I had the good chance to be there when he made the announcement and to talk afterwards briefly about it with Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs, Monica Medina. Here's Secretary Kerry. I don't know how many of you have stopped to really think about the integration of the ocean with climate. But the fact is that you can't solve the problems of the planet, biodiversity and or climate crisis, without focusing on the ocean. And you can't focus on the ocean adequately without focusing on climate, because what's happening with the climate is having this profound impact on the ocean itself. Specifically, we are putting emissions up into the atmosphere. The emissions include greenhouse gases, obviously, which are pollutants, including particularly coal particulates. Those particulates travel around the world in the atmosphere and then drop in rainfall. They go into the ocean and they raise the acidity of the ocean. They're part of the, and, and the heating which is coming from that blanket that pre prevents the heat from escaping, goes into the ocean. The ocean is the largest sink in the world. It gathers this carbon and keeps it internally 
and half, excuse me, not half, 90% of all of the heating that comes from global warming, global climate change, is going into the ocean where it's contained. So what does all this say about where we stand at the beginning of 2023 in respect of climate? Personally, while at COP27 in Egypt, I found the various discussions in the governmental and policy meetings in the Blue Zone, in the private sector-focused scientific presentations, and if you could, could find where they were sidelined in this big circus, to civil society, youth activists, and indigenous groups, all to be insightful, serious, and realistic, but also a little bit siloed, disconnected and to me, somewhat frustrating at times. At least people as individuals from all over the globe have been consistently curious and open in sharing their knowledge, experiences, hopes, and values. And it's important to distinguish a few themes. First, mitigation of climate change lends itself to quantification and thus to policy and investment decisions driven by science, by data, markets, and metrics. As Mike Bloomberg said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. These are some things that can be measured. Greenhouse gas emissions, carbon budgets, probabilistic climate models and scenarios, externalities economically, avoided costs. Although still putting a price on carbon is almost impossible without coherent policies and price signals to markets. Adaptation is more challenging. It has no numerical targets and costs will depend on the degree to which mitigation works. The costs spiral, perhaps unaffordably, if mitigation fails to keep 1.5 alive. And allocations of money for adaptation, and who pays, who receives the benefits of the funding, who decides, to say nothing of the important distinction between adaptation and compensation, are among the contentious policy issues in the loss and damage sovereign discussions that successfully concluded COP27. Government policies are stimulating investments at scale, which drives costs down and creates more rapid deployment of capital to areas where investment is sorely needed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions while maintaining the quality of life. And if you put all of these conversations globally together, someone really should make a word cloud of all the buzzwords which we heard this year. Acceleration. Transformation. Collaboration. Scale. Adjust transition. Lock-ins, innovation, market-based solutions, new standards, decarbonization, and ambition loops. And of course, the ubiquitous implementation. I asked Chris at the end of COP27 about his hopes for the progress of investments from governments and the private sector. Not just from governments, thankfully, but also from, from industry. And, and hopefully we can see a lot of the finance sector also get behind that because it's, uh, it's important that we take this time. Great. Okay. Well, Chris, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. This has been just a tremendous opportunity to share this experience with you. Thanks, Al. Cheers. As humans, we love to procrastinate. And part of the problem with climate change is that by the time the impacts become apparent, broadly, it may be too late. Yet perhaps we're finally seeing the alignment of public policy, capital allocation from both private investment and government funding, technological innovation, and the more efficient generation 
and use of energy in buildings, in industry, in transportation, and in agriculture. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Milbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at milbank.com.